Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. Hello, Caitlin. Hello, Michelle. I can see your friend's poster behind your bed. It was very recording. I love that. I think I I got that for you. I can't remember. You did. (laughs) Um, You did. And you have just given me the perfect segue into my recommendation. Do you want me to just start? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. So technically I have not finished this book yet, but I will probably finish it tomorrow. But I've been reading, uh, bear with me here, directed by James Burroughs, title, subtitle, Five Decades of Stories from the Legendary Director of Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, and more. Oh, wow. Written by James Burroughs. I love a long <laughs> with non-fiction. <laughs> a long non-fiction with subtitle is really funny, isn't it? Yeah. And also, it's just like, it's so funny because... The book is called Directed by James Burroughs and the cover design is like, it kind of looks like an old-timey TV and it's like the Cheers font. Oh, cool. Because it's like he directed all of that. So, yeah. But then it's like Directed by James Burroughs by James Burroughs. Like, it's a crazy title <laughs> yeah, for that a is, book because that he's is also kind the author of, of the book. Yeah. That is a bit but that yeah. is a bit crazy. They could have been a little bit more creative there, but, you know... But in some ways, it is also great because he's a director. So it's yeah. all about the things he's directed. So I don't Not know. Actually, yeah. Oh, is it good? Tell me it's, about it. It's complicated to say, but it's a. I think it is a good title. So it is, you know, broken. This whole book is like broken into sections, which is basically a bit about his childhood, a bit about his father, a bit about his early career in theatre. And then he got his start in TV on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And started directing there and on like um, other shows on at the time, like Laverne and Shirley, and oh my god, like you know, a few things like that. And then worked a lot on Taxi, and then co-created Cheers, and directed like ninety percent of Cheers over the eleven years it was on. Wow! And then yeah, and then Frasier, Friends. He, I haven't read the bits about Will and Grace yet, but I'm pretty sure he also directed almost every episode of Will and Grace. And he's just directed so many more episodes of television as well and is really well known for, particularly around that time of like Frasier, Friends, like shows around that time for like you direct the pilot, like you get James mm. Burroughs to do the pilot. And then you definitely like get golden. This, yeah, wow. Yeah. He's really well known, and like in the sitcom world as yes. well. Like he basically it's a very it's sitcom. Sitcoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And and different types of sitcoms that really seem to have added something to the genre. Like Cheers. I don't. I, do, I don't know heaps about Cheers, but like reading about it in this book, and obviously he has high opinion. It's his work, but it's. One of the first shows, you know, you look back at, like, a lot of older sitcoms and all the episodes really stand alone, like, truly, Mm, and they barely have any character development. And the relationship between um, Sam and Diane was, like, kind of 
one of the first to really kind of evolve in that way and that's why the audience was tuning in not just to see all the funny stuff that was happening in the bar yeah like they were invested in the characters and how they evolved and then that continued when they spun off Frasier um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, like, then that becomes part of the blueprint, doesn't it? And everyone yes. was invested in Ross and Rachel. And, and then Chandler and Monica. And, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. even the style of show, like a true ensemble show, the way Friends was, then becomes, you know, a slight blueprint for, like, other big ensemble sitcoms that followed. You know, like, it's just crazy. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, that's like such a. We know I love friends and we know I'm a TV nerd. So I love all the. I love books and podcasts behind the scenes of TV and sitcoms and things. Yeah, I I feel like that really is your. That really is like your niche. The way that I love like a crime drama and true crime podcast. Like you love a behind the scenes. It's so fascinating how it all works and like the. And the genre of of sitcom as well and the way that it like has evolved and everything and like um even through James Burroughs career talking about how in the US the big night for like TV comedy used to be Saturday night like people were free on Saturday nights or something mm. and then it became Thursday because everyone would want to advertise on Thursday for people to go out and do things on Fridays. Oh. Like, and yeah, movies yeah, would yeah. open on Fridays. And so right. they would need to advertise the movies on Thursday and go on. Like, just things like that. So crazy. And, like, when you think about how many people watched Cheers and and MASH and Friends, like, oh, my God, the numbers are just insane. And I guess everything's, like, it's True. so, as we always say, like, streaming has changed everything in the way that we... sit down and consume the way we binge things like that also changes our habits and what we want and also the Mm. way that people write and direct in terms of when big moments happen at the end of an episode or you know like the way that that's why everything used to have to stand alone because you couldn't assume that people had seen any episode prior to that because they would turn on their tv on a random time and I've actually so um I've been <laughs> comfort rewatching Heartbeat um and yeah. I do sort of notice that as well where like you know obviously this was a classic like 26 episodes to a season you know good old days yeah. of of our like favorite dramas and stuff um but you know where something massive happens you know somebody dies but it's not necessarily the last episode of the season there might still be a couple more episodes to go um and then you know it also won't happen it it feels as you say very self-contained within that episode Mm -hmm. um and there's a story arc within that whereas obviously now were someone to for example based on the episode where a character died on one of the episodes I was watching this week if someone was to run into a burning building that is where the episode would end now because they need you to uh, come back for the next one to see if they survive yeah and it's to very sit different. through and not mm. and not press any button that gets you out of it while yeah. the Netflix loads like are you still watching like next yeah. episode playing yeah. in three seconds whereas like and in you that just go, one well what happened know, yeah exactly whereas like back then and same with you know a lot of other dramas it's a bit even even when you're watching things like say 
from the mid 2000s like you know I'm thinking crime dramas but you know like Bones and Castles it's still Mm. fairly self-contained story it's really the streaming that sort of really made it and even like to some extent something like Veronica Mars where yes there was an overarching season mystery but you still had like a full conclusion and you didn't get that cliffhanger until right at the end of like maybe the second last episode so you watch the final like it's very different isn't it it's yeah yeah it's quite amazing the season finale so that you are excited to watch and you watch all the reruns as they rerun before the new season starts next year yeah and then there's that big jump in the season yeah oh it's it's i it is actually fascinating i do love like social history pop culture well you know i love social history stuff but like it's all the minute details of like this one change sort of influenced all these other cultural things like i love stuff like that yeah so yeah it is really it's interesting. fascinating and like pop culture history is fascinating like i this is actually a brand new fact that i did not know shocking <laughs> lisa kudrow was cast in the pilot episode of Frasier as one of the new characters they were adding for that spin-off. Oh. And and it like wasn't quite working. She wasn't like gritty enough, I think, for like it's like his radio producer, I think. Mm-hmm. I might be I just read this and I might already be getting it wrong. But Lisa Kudrow was cast in that and and Jimmy Burris was directing that and everything. And then the next year when, you know, she's still auditioning and she was on um, mad about you as like a recurring character at the time and everything and then she's perfect for Phoebe obviously mm. yeah I read this bit where James Burroughs recalls um, he heard someone on set say oh Lisa was like oh that fucking Jimmy Burroughs is directing like because she got fired from the last oh, yeah, pilot that yeah. he shot her in and yeah. so he's like oh my god like that guy and then <laughs> but you know it was just if she had been cast in that, then she would have been committed to another show. Exactly. And she wouldn't, and she be, wouldn't Phoebe. be Phoebe. <laughs> Which is what like, we all know and love imagine? her for. Yeah. It's so yeah. crazy. Yeah. Oh, it's, wow. You know, all of these things that just like add up to all these different moments. So anyway, I've been really, really enjoying it. And it nice. is kind of funny. I said to a friend a couple of days ago that like earlier in the book, you know, there's lots of references to um like writers, producers, actors, you know, things like this that he was working with that I don't know because I am younger than him, like way mm-hmm. younger than him, obviously. And But then as we've gotten closer to all these things that I know, like when he starts getting onto Cheers and talking about, you know, young Ted Danson figuring it out and everything, and I'm like, oh, my God, like imagine yeah. at the start of this. And then, yeah, and so then I've been like lying through it because we're at shows that I've seen you know know, a few episodes of or the entire thing several times like Friends (laughs) (laughs) well yeah actually um we've been re-watching Friends as well um and Mm. we're in like I'm definitely end of season two I think it's just one of those ones where like we might not both watch it together and like you know they kind of keep it going yeah so we've just had it on and you know jack might watch a few i might watch a few um but you can do that with friends for obvious reasons mm. well exactly you yeah. both know what happens exactly we've both watched them multiple times so yeah oh yeah great well um talking about rewatches and rereads i actually want to recommend and talk about a book that 
I think I've said is one of my favourite books before. If I've talked about it on the podcast, though, it would have been like five years ago because that's when I last read it. Um, oh. And you know this is one of my favourite movies. And it is Brooklyn by Com Tobain. Um, so mm. one of the reasons I wanted to reread it, apart from the fact that it was on my little dedicated reread shelf, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more now, like end of year wrap up episode, um, is that I was looking through new releases again, because we're going to talk about things that are on our radar for next year. Um, and mm-hmm. I saw that he has, um, a sequel to Brooklyn coming out called Long Island. Um, and oh, wow. it's set 20 years in the future uh, so it's the 1970s because the Brooklyn takes place at the start of the 1950s um, so it's 20 years on from the events of Brooklyn and um, you know I was looking at that and I was thinking about it and I was like oh I really should reread it um, so I did and you Ooh, know the in first... preparation for the well, sequel yeah of but then like you know when you're like but also because it's one of your favorites yeah but also when you know when you're like oh I'll read that I'll reread it next year closer to when it comes out and then I just couldn't stop thinking about it and I was like oh I really really want yeah. to reread it um the first time I read it I because I had loved the movie first I didn't it took me so long to read. It took me months and months and I read other stuff in between. This time I read it in like four days um, and I gobbled it up. Um, And I think that speaks a little bit to how much my reading taste taste has changed in five, six years. Um, Like both of us have changed it, changed so much. Yeah. We've both, we both read a little bit more literary than we used to. And this is 100% literary because, you know, I always say I feel like I'm too dumb to read like Man Booker Prize winners and stuff like mm. that. This was yeah. long listed for the Booker Prize um, when it came out in 2019, well, not 2019, when it came out in 2019. Um, and I didn't know that. So then I saw it on when I reread it and I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't think I was smart enough to wow. read this stuff. <laughs> So, yeah, it's wow, just... look at us, we're evolving. I know. <laughs> I think this is getting older. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, let oh, me fill, fill you in um, for anyone who's not familiar. This also is very much a book, which is 100% our vibe this year, of a book where literally nothing really happens. It's all <laughs> about emotions. I mean, in the movie she it it all happens like fairly quickly the the movie opens like we're already like 50 pages into the book like it the, yeah, the right. first 50 pages are really setting up this irish village and you know sort of the the family and the world that she's from but yeah in the movie she's basically just leaving she's just right? leaving straight I have away in the movie i don't remember if i watched it with you i would have made you watch it, it because i remember you Maybe. said to me oh she's just trying to pick between two guys and i was like no caitlin it's about so much more than that um and it is because <laughs> in the book she doesn't even meet the guy until like literally halfway through the book most of the book yeah. is really introspectively looking at her the reason why she's leaving Ireland or why she's Mm. sort of being made to leave Ireland by her sister. Her sister essentially is sacrificing her life. She's not married. She's not seeing anyone. So she's going to stay and look after their mother. And she says, Eilish, there's no jobs for you here. So I have organized for you to go 
to America where there are jobs and you're going to be sponsored by this Irish priest and he's got you a job and you're going to America and she doesn't really have a say in it but it's like a better life sort of thing so we follow her on the boat um I would like honestly these passages take up so much of the the book itself but in a way that like I'm that sounds sort of boring but when you read it you know when you read one of those books where it is all about feelings and emotions this time I just raced through that because it's more what I read now we follow her getting set up there we sort of really get to grips with like who she lives with um, in this boarding house her job and she gets this really intense sort of homesickness and basically her boss she works in this really upmarket department store and basically her boss is like you can't work here if you look like that um so we're gonna do something about it and they call the priest and he organized for her to like enroll in like a bookkeeping evening class and it sort of gives her a bit more spring in her step and then she meets this guy and really I think even more so in the book than in the movie um she's very much like not sure he 100% feels a lot stronger about her than she does about him like she's very much like um I don't really know yet because she's very very shy and he really grows but I sort of recognized a lot of myself in that as well and I'm sure you will as well Caitlin Mm -hmm. of like needing to get to know someone and it's sort of being a real slow burn but he's obviously like head over heels in her with in love with her like from the start it's really cute um and he's so cute in the film as well so yeah we sort of go through that and then there is a tragedy back home and she has to go back to Ireland and when she's there she suddenly gets offered a job and she's sort of hanging around with her friends who are getting married and there's another man who sort of starts wanting to date her and she's really torn not between the two men I think it's too simplistic to say it's a love triangle between two men because really it's what them it's what they represent more choices yeah Yeah. it's it's so many more choices to it than just picking one of them yes because it's like do I pick the safety security and what I know of this life in Ireland or do I follow my heart and this sort of exciting really unknown leap into this new life with this man who's so different from everything you know he's Italian and you know he's there's this whole different life that could be and she feels like that is now home and maybe actually Ireland is less familiar when she goes back and so it's really like that torn between those two cultural options um, and obviously the book explores that a lot more, but the, the finish is very, very quick. Um, like, it feels like it, it, I was really surprised where I was like, oh my God, I've only got like 40 pages to go. And she's still like, it, it just all happened very, very quickly at the end. And I'd sort of forgotten wow. so much about that. But yeah, I think it's just, it's interesting that like our reading tastes have both changed so much that now we love a book like that and actually yeah in in a lot of ways you can have such a different experience rereading something at a different time or even though I've always loved a different time in your life or yeah yeah, like different circumstances around when you read a book do really change your experience of it like when you read it last time had you been to Ireland we had been to Ireland but you know, I hadn't lived overseas yet. 
and I also yeah. hadn't I also hadn't lost my dad yet and I hadn't felt yeah. a lot of there are all of these this stuff and you know like that, you know change your life and your reading experience when I've had this like things like that just as we moved back this time you know I've had other stuff going on with my family back in Australia which you know about Caitlin and I've said to you as well I feel like I'm so happy here but there's this other stuff happening and then Mm. you feel like a lot of weight of guilt and all this other stuff and I think that's what I've sort of empathized with I sort of knew that that would happen yeah this is kind of what you're joking about hey that we've actually just you know you've grown up since the last time yeah yeah but I think I think the first the reason this always resonated with me as a story is because I always knew even before I I watched this before I've met my now husband I Mm. always knew I wanted to live overseas and I always knew that this would be something that I felt because my parents were older and so I and and I'm the only child so when Eilish feels that that she is the only one there for her parents and stuff like that like that is I I saw that that would be something that I would have to grapple with in the future if I was to follow my dream of moving overseas now we have and we've gone back and it didn't feel the set you know like we've made that decision to do the brave scary thing and we love it and we're so happy over here and she sort of says that at the end too like she sort of is telling someone else and how you know one day you'll just feel like that's home and it's like and and yeah it just sort of now it's even more it resonates even more but in terms of a reading experience I I read a lot more books like this in fact yeah segueing into our interview today a lot of people might look at at playing games which is what we're going to be talking about it is also a book where it's not that many big things happen but it is all about the way the characters interact their personal lives these small decisions and emotions and how that affects us so playing games you know if I had read that five years ago maybe I also wouldn't have loved it as much as I do but now that sort of literally a book where not much happens but it's all about emotions is literally our like bread and butter like that is what we love we i know love we that. always joke about that's what we want yeah, yeah that is so what funny. oh yeah. my gosh this is so interesting yeah what an interesting discussion <laughs> at both t- like about both books i we know have. yeah so this is what we love about doing this <laughs> and another one to follow yes yeah so the the discussion today is just is so is so interesting and since we have recorded this I then passed on my copy to Alicia who we're mentioning in this episode yet again very good friend of the podcast and unsurprisingly she absolutely adored it um which I knew she would because she was the one who recommended we speak to Huma so you know I, I would have been shocked if she hadn't loved it but yes another ringing endorsement there but yeah I yeah Brooklyn if you don't want to commit to reading the book I mean it's a very small book it's only like I'd say it's like 250 pages or something. Like, it's small. Really? Um, and then we watched the... Oh, that's the other thing. So we, we I watched the movie then um, last night oh. as well. And I made Jack watch it with me. And he was like, I don't know whether you have actually made me watch this before. But I was like, oh, it's one of my favourite movies. And the hot, like he really resonated with Tony as well. And I kept being Aww. like, he reminds me a bit of you. And then at the end when she sort of makes his her choice, which, I mean if you it's it's not it's not really I don't I don't want to sort of spoil it but also like if you look up his new book 
it will say what the answer is. Yeah. But basically at the end, Jack was like, Tony, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was just really sweet. So yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to obviously like seeing, but I'm also really nervous now because I'm like, oh my God, don't make Tony an asshole in the new one. Like I don't want him to have changed when they've had kids and stuff, you know, like I love this Tony. I, know, I don't want him It's to like, have... what's the story in the happily ever after? Like, I don't know. I don't, I, oh, I don't. Like, I can't wait to find it's out gonna be, when you I mean, it's not going to be a happily ever after, is it? Because every book yeah. has to start with some sort of conflict. But I'm like, no, Tony, we must protect Tony. He must be lovely. I don't want Tony to be horrible in 20 years. So I will report yeah. back in, you know, May, June, whenever the book comes out. Um, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah. Awesome. And with that, yeah, we will we will lead into our um, you know, talk about I mean, you it's so funny that literally these types of books though are the ones I think you can talk about so much more than a plot driven novel when it's literally all just yeah. emotions and yeah, like all these little details, little minute details, and we get into that in this following interview. Our guest this week is an award-winning author and journalist. Her memoir, How We Met, A Memoir of Love and Other Misadventures, was shortlisted for the Books in My Bag Indie Readers Awards, while her short story collection, Things We Do Not Tell the People We Love, long-listed for several awards. She has also worked and written for The Guardian and The Observer, among other publications. Today we are discussing her debut novel, Playing Games. Welcome to Better Words, Huma Qureshi. Thank you. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Um, it's just like lovely to have this chat about books. So yeah, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for joining us. We're looking forward to the chat about books as always. Yeah, <laughs> and we have to we have to credit um, our friend Alicia with encouraging us many times to read your work. She's also done um, some of your courses and just always talks, especially about your short story collections and has, I know you've inspired her so much and we're going to talk a little bit at the end about your work as a mentor as well um, and sort of how that impacts on your writing and stuff. But yeah, I had to give her a shout out and because I told her we were having you on the podcast and I messaged to say how much I was loving playing games. And she said, see, I told you, I've been telling you. And she's Aww. right. It's, playing games is just, is just excellent. It's, it's beautiful. And it's funny when I started it, I wasn't expecting to race through it as much as I have, but I've just absolutely gripped by these these the relationship between these two sisters which we are we're going to talk about so um oh, would, yes. you, would you like to introduce playing games to us i would and before i do i just want to say i know our listeners can't see us but i just have this huge smile on my face because it <laughs> makes me so happy to hear you say that about playing games but it also makes me really happy to hear how you discovered the book as well because i think those personal connections are just so special um, and yes, thank you, Alicia, so much for making you guys read my book. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Playing Games is my debut novel. It's actually my fourth book, but my first long-form fiction. Um, and it's about two sisters called Hannah and Mira. Um, they're both very different, but they're actually more similar than I think they care to admit. Like, they would never admit that to each other, but they are. Um, yeah, so they're very different. Hannah is a high flyer, um, seemingly successful in all fronts, marriage, house, career. 
Um, whilst Mira, her younger sister by two years, is a creative, she's a playwright, but she's struggling. She's struggling for material to write about, and she kind of keeps beating herself up about her lack of progress. Um, and she doesn't have any ideas to write about until one day she hears her sister Hannah in an argument with her husband about something very private and personal. But the argument is loud and it sits in Mira's head until she realizes that maybe that's actually a good idea to write about. And so she takes that inspiration and turns it into something. And there is an inevitable fallout that comes from that. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read the book. But it's basically my way of having a, a real play at, with the idea of sisters borrowing from each other, which they do in real life all the time. But how far can you go when it comes to borrowing something that's really private from your sister's life and turning it into something for the sake of art? So there's lots of questions about fiction, reality, creativity, art. There's lots of questions about marriage and motherhood through the character of Hannah. Um, but above all, it's about love. Um, and it's about what can be forgiven and how much can be forgiven. Oh, I mean, all incredibly interesting themes and topics. I mean, sister relationships, you know, this like fact and fiction kind of thing like you know mm. how how much of real life do you use in work and everything like oh it's all so interesting and it's I just want to start with it's so interesting obviously that this book you know there's that moment and she uses a real life moment that is inspiration for work for a piece of art was there a particular moment that inspired you for this novel <laughs> There was, but not in an obvious plot way, like not in an obvious way. So you didn't overhear the same argument? (laughs) I didn't overhear any (laughs) arguments, but what did inspire me was that at the time that my short story collection came out, which is called Things We Do Not Tell the People We Love, that was the end of 2021. And at the time, um, you know, I was very lucky. I got some wonderful reviews, but it would surprise me how often in reviews, people, reviewers would mention that these stories are obviously based on the author's life. That would come up a lot. And I'd be like, oh, is that? I don't think so. I think I made all of that up. Um, and I, there was one story in particular which got a lot of attention because it won the Harper's Bazaar Literary Prize so people, you know, could read it before they read the book. Um, and that's quite a dark story about a young girl who has a terrible relationship with her mother and essentially tries to kill her mother by poisoning her with some jam, right? It's a completely, when I say it like that, it sounds like a ridiculous idea for a story. But that's how made up it was. And yet I got lots of messages from people who knew me, friends, um, other writers, um, people who would sort of send a message and say, is everything okay with you and your and you and your mum? Like, are you, are you okay? Like, is there some kind of underlying thing going on here? And I'd have to, <laughs> I found it quite amusing. I wasn't offended. I just found it, isn't that interesting that yeah. people read my work? as automatically biographical and that therefore all these things and yeah my short stories are we're not here to talk about those today but they're very different stories they all feature female protagonists uh in their sort of early 20s going through quite difficult dark things like I would say it's a much darker book than playing games but it really interested me that people 
assumed that that darkness must have come from somewhere real in terms of the things that had actually happened, like the actual details of the plot. Like, did you go to that place and did that happen? And I just found that so fascinating. And yes, I know like there is a place to get very, you know, defensive about that and say, well, would you ask that of a man? Would you, you know, but at some level I kind of wasn't that defensive. And actually what I found more interesting was other people's reaction to it. Like, is it, is it easier to believe if it feels like it's real or does it worry you that it might be real? You know, some of those stories that I'd written had very terrible relationships. Um, and I had close friends again, you know, I had family members asking me about me and my mom. My mom found that was very funny. And she did wonder why so many of my characters were trying to kill their mothers or just <laughs> didn't get along with them. Yeah. And my friends would be like, is everything okay with you and, and Richard, my husband? And they're like, everything's fine, guys. This is fiction. This is my <laughs> way of <laughs> testing life. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of helped that I'd written a memoir as well, because I could point to that and say, no, this is this is real. This is fiction. Fiction allows me to make And like, you up. already know it's yeah. different. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was kind of, that was a seed that was going around in my head. And um, so that was what I sort of borrowed, so to speak, from real life was that mm. theme of why, why does it matter in a way as yeah. well? Like if it's real, if it's not real. That and, intriguing thing. Yeah. And I think it is just fascinating. And Around about the same time, I think a couple of years earlier, there'd been a short story that went viral in the New York cat person. Yeah. It went, you know, crazy and everyone was reading it and everyone was like, oh, wow, people are interested in short stories. Um, and then a couple of years later, so I think around about the time that thing We Do Not Tell came out or possibly just before that, it emerged that a lot of that had been kind of based on someone else's life as well. And then there was this whole discussion about what you can borrow from from real life, what's ethical, what's not ethical. And then there was a whole other story in the New Yorker about acquaintances in a in a writing group. Yeah, bad art friend. One of them had borrowed yeah. the bad art friend. Exactly. So all of that was running through my mind and they were like threads of thought that just sort of came together. And I thought, wouldn't that be interesting to see how that would play out in real life? Mm. And I think that to me is what writing fiction is. It's looking at what could be just so fascinating to unpick and explore mm. and like you kind of get obsessive about something as a writer and I I think I got obsessed by this theme of wanting to know why why it mattered so much and and what harm it could do and how it could make you feel if you were in the situation of being the person whose life was borrowed from because I imagine as we know for Hannah that doesn't go so well yeah um, so yeah I just find it genuinely fascinating and I still do so that is what that side of the storyline came from yeah. I mean it is fascinating and you're right before when you said about like there is that thing then it's like oh well no one ever asks men this it's like no one ever mm. thinks crime authors are out like killing people do <laughs> yeah. they it's like young women yeah. writing like literary contemporary you know in get like mm -hmm. sad girl lit like all of these kinds of things it's like mm. oh and everyone just assumes it's like that it is one thing with some of those to be like oh is this based on your own bad breakup compared to like but do you want to poison your mother that's yeah, a bit of a stretch yeah. I would and think. I always remember but... the conversation that um Emma Gannon and Holly Bourne had way back when Holly's book Pretending was coming out and she mentioned there's a character in that that doesn't like weddings. And after that, like a lot of people were like, oh, I'm so sorry that we... And she's like, no, I made this up. Like, it's not... 
it's not me and yeah, they do people have latch on to really of, tiny things don't they yeah and like why do yeah. people especially with someone like Amagannon is the same of someone who has also written non-fiction and then fiction but people seem to ask more about the fiction of like what's based on this what's based on this who's this based on I don't know yeah. I don't know what it is but that actually sort of leads into yeah. my next question which was about those blurred lines because actually as I was reading this and thinking about you know when we read a book for the podcast and I start thinking oh what sort of stuff do I want to ask in the interview what sort of questions should we ask I was thinking actually this is the third book that I've read this year that asks these questions of us as as readers and creatives of what stories can you tell that aren't necessarily yours so um yellow face by um Mm -hmm. rebecca kwang that that is very much like the central thing of that obviously but in terms of obviously a stolen manuscript manuscript. but actually (laughs) what I was thinking wasn't the stolen manuscript it was something later in the thing where more comes out about the person who wrote the original manuscript talking to people and essentially sort of mining their emotions and their stories for her stories and then the other one that I thought of Caitlin was Farrah McFarlane's Between Us because that opens it's it's a rom-com it's very it's very different but it the breakup at the start is focused on the fact that the main character has told her screenwriter partner basically the most intimate detail of her life, the biggest secret that she has, and her and her friends are all watching his new crime drama and the end of the first episode ends with essentially that on screen. And then, of course, she starts to question, well, this person's like having an affair and is all this other stuff in like what what is real and what's not in our life then if you're taking inspiration from me are you taking inspiration from other parts of your life and obviously that's different but I just think it's so interesting that those it is such a big question and it's a really interesting topic and obviously all three books are done in very very different ways they have very different things but that question to me was like a central theme linking them I'm curious though did you go into writing this with like a clear idea of what your opinion was or is it something that sort of changed like how much of a story can we tell when it's not necessarily ours it's so interesting because in a way and I wish I had read those books because I've just sort of been living in this book for the last two years writing and editing I'm so behind on my reading so I wish I could add more on this but they both sound obviously I've heard so much about Yellowface but they both sound so fascinating and I didn't realize that it actually had that theme so that's even more interesting to me now um I think for me when I write I try to be like a camera in a film, right? So I'm sort of observing things happen to other people. And I kind of took that approach to the theme of borrowing from real life. Like, I really don't think it, I think the answer changes. Mm. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But ultimately, I kind of feel like it's kind of insignificant in the bigger picture. Um, And that maybe the answer is, is that we spend so long deliberating on what is true and what is fiction that we fail to take from fiction all the other things that it can give us and and I wonder if maybe that is just as humans as readers we're constantly looking for significance and meaning when sometimes 
that's not the most important thing is like the origin of it is not the most important thing it's what you take from it in that moment sitting there say in the context of playing games she's writing a play not a book and that mm. that was a very conscious choice that Mira is is borrowing this idea from her sister's right life and she's writing a play about it which therefore has to be seen it has to be witnessed you have to mm. see it unravel and that's what her sister then does is that she sees this on the stage but there's so much more about storytelling and sort of being in that moment and, and Mira writes Mira writes I write about Mira <laughs> and what she um she's getting very messy now like all these layers of truth and fiction I am not Mira but I was writing about Mira and how much the act of writing and what she got from being in the theatre and watching those plays, these fleeting moments that left these very significant memories for her or brought up these emotions that made her feel like what she was watching was real. Like mm, that yeah. to me is kind of more important is the sort of the, the real, the very individual, very personal connection that any one person can have with a story. Like that's what it gives you. Where it comes from, I think is less, important and less significant but I still find it really really fascinating yeah to to, to think about like I I couldn't have written this book with a super strong opinion that no what she's done is absolutely wrong because I don't I don't think it was yeah yeah it is interesting like all of our interest in this like and forgive me because my best example of this is how everyone always um wants to know like who taylor swift's songs are about and it's like but she (laughs) writes songs for all of us so like there's we're supposed to listen to them and then they're about like our relationships and our friendships right you know you interpret them for yourself yeah yeah and that's what makes it so special right is feeling like that story belongs for you or that song Mm belongs for you in that moment um and that's what's amazing i think about the fact that art and music and literature and theatre and like all and film like all of these things can yeah. suddenly mean so much to us on a really personal level but yeah. loads of us are having those personal reactions in different ways like yes. I think that's and fascinating all, yeah well. and so different Caitlin the first thing I thought of really... when you said that as well was I yeah. was just I had a we had a little break I had a meeting before this and I went downstairs and I listened to some music and I was listening to Maisie Peters of course. of course and it <laughs> reminded me of there's a song that she's just done Huma, about her relationship and she finally names who her ex is she says the name Andrew oh. but then the second verse she's like I, I bet you're all wondering who Andrew is but that's really not important stay with me here it's what he represents and which is me getting yeah, obsessed yeah. with men I can't have and I think it's that idea of like it's it's the representation but I also think it's 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 interesting that you sort of do have that meta moment in the playwriting group that Mira is part of where she asks the question and and gets a bit of a discussion and I think it is very true what Dominic says in that moment of well as you write something you're going to edit it and change it and you bring your own layers of understanding to it. So even if it was sparked by something that someone said or someone else's experience, you sort of synthesize it into your own experience. The thing that I guess he doesn't know at that point yeah. is uh, that, that we've sort of witnessed is that Mira keeps trying to rewrite things and then keeps thinking it, it doesn't sound as real. I need to use the exact yeah. words. And that's, I guess, where sort of, the the tension there for her is of like 
I know that maybe this is wrong, but also it's really right creatively. <laughs> and, and what do you do? I'm really curious, Caitlin, as the older sister, what would you do if it was your sister and that oh happened? God. Like, I'm just curious. <laughs> How would you feel? <laughs> I mean... Funnily enough, I mean, I am the older sister, but also if this were to happen, I'm the more creative You're one. You're the one so who would be writing it. Me <laughs> ripping off my sister's experience. And I feel like maybe Mickey um, would love that, actually. She'd be like, yes, I am the inspiration <laughs> for this. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and that's funny too, because that's an element, isn't it? It was that it is often you know a joke and things like that in you know books mm. movies TV, where it's like oh if something if there's like a writer character and it's like oh you're gonna use this like oh, i think put me that, in the story. That, i mean write correct me, me if i'm wrong but like, there is a moment there's really both the start where she says that she's like oh there you can is. use that for, for use that for your stories or whatever yeah. and it's People like say that all yeah. The time. yeah yeah and it's like yeah everyone thinks it would be like so fun until it probably happens mm. and then you go oh yeah. no <laughs> like it's I mean this is what is so interesting about this topic um yeah I don't know I guess it's just fascinating because I, I don't know, know where I stand I have and a I think different you're right. relationship with my sister than these two have <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and I'm kind of glad to hear that yeah so that's, that, that sort of it kind of moves us on to our next question as well is um you know the Guardian review of playing games does describe it as characters in uncomfortable situations who say and do uncomfortable things and I think sometimes that's what I was feeling of you're getting the insight of say Hannah maybe lashing out at her sister and she doesn't really want to but she can't sort of help herself and can help herself yeah and and yeah. those situations and I mean we love so we love characters like this who are uncomfortable to read and who are like because we're all messy human beings right and we all have those moments where we we sort of do or say something and then we think god we shouldn't have shouldn't have done that but um how important is it to you that when you write you know you do maybe leave readers feeling a bit unsettled or a bit uncomfortable even if that's not you know the easiest reading experience I don't know that I do it consciously with the reader in mind I think I'm just incredibly drawn to complicated very messy characters and I and I feel that there's a real sadness in all of my characters like whether it's Hannah Mira and Samir from playing games or any of the girls from things we do not tell that they're they're constantly unable to express themselves and I think that is going to forever be a theme that I return to in my writing because I feel like so much hinges on what is unsaid and in Hannah's case she can't help herself from saying things she doesn't mean to say which is almost the inverse in a way like she says things instead of saying the nice things it's the hurtful things and she doesn't know why she does it and I think I'm just trying in my writing to show characters who feel real like to me it's weird to describe them as characters because I feel very much that they're people so to me it's like just showing people who are real complicated messy nuanced can be both things at once like neither one thing that I was very conscious of doing was with a story about sisters was that it's a trope right in literature that we see a lot you will have two sisters one will be good one will be bad one will be super organized and brilliant and one will be wild and scatty and yeah there's Mm -hmm. a little bit of that going on but I was very conscious that I needed them to be more complex than that so you can overlap you can be both 
creative and scatty, but also have these moments of being really on it. Because Mira does yeah. have that too. You know? Like she's she's efficient in her cafe job. Hannah watches her and is actually like, actually, oh no, no, she looks like she belongs here and things like that. And and Hannah seemingly has it all together, but really she doesn't. And and I it really mattered to show that they're not just one cookie cutter sister character that I think maybe you start reading and you think oh okay I get this Mira is the one that's with the housemate oh I see I see where this is going but actually there's so much more depth to both of them and that to me was the most important thing was to show um, whether it was for readers or whether it was for myself as I was writing Mm. I don't know the answer but it was to show that you're not just one thing or the other Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and you can constantly be going crossing those lines and life isn't that binary and yeah the possibility of holding two feelings at once two very extreme feelings at once I think is possible and I think that is real and I really wanted to explore that and see how that would feel you know like if you want to be able to tell your sister or even your husband in Hannah's case that you love them that you care for them that you can't possibly imagine your life without them but the words that come out completely the opposite like imagine carrying that all the time like and I felt for Hannah and I know that Hannah is sort of seen as the bad sister she's mean or whatever but like it really really mattered to me that she especially showed her vulnerable vulnerable side and so that readers could forgive her and understand her for who she is as well yeah definitely as readers the you know we do spend time with both of them the book is from both of their perspectives and as they you know interact with each other and everything you get like you know it isn't just from one person's side that we do see from mm. both of them was did did either Hannah or Mira like come first is that one of them easier to write was it ever from only one of their perspectives or can you tell us a bit about writing both of them yeah that is so interesting because though this novel had various iterations in the very beginning you know Mm. like there were different uh different contexts sort of different frameworks similar themes but different different beginnings and things like that there were various sort of drafts and layers of, of that going on but at the heart of it, it was always two sisters, and it was always these sisters. But with each version, I was getting closer and closer to the real Hannah and Mira, who were who were just the right ones for the story. And I think yeah. at one point, I just, I just, I just instinctively knew that I'd found them, which I know sounds a bit bonkers to say out loud (laughs) but that's how it works for me like I I'm not someone who would necessarily plan in great detail in a very Mm. methodical way and a lot I I see people who do that and I look at them and I think wow I would love to be as (laughs) level-headed and calm about as you about writing in the sense that you know exactly where you're going I didn't experience that um and so I did feel like I was getting to know them in these various kind of half-abandoned novels, one after the other, one after the other, until I finally found who they were going to be. But it was always going to be these two sisters who were unable to say how much they cared. Um, mm. And that was always going to be the heart of it. And I was just kind of finding them and putting them in different situations until Hannah and Mira kind of just became really clear to me in a very visual way so 
I don't know if that answers your question. I find it so hard to explain how I go about writing because often it's just like I emerge from this space and like <laughs> I have no idea how that happened. It just did. Um, it just did. So, yeah. yeah that's... <laughs> I know. I think it is always hard, you know, when we're like, and you know, why do you choose to do this? And people are like, I don't know. I was just writing. Like it just, <laughs> like, it just happens. It is interesting though that you know it was really always like this like that set of both of them you know yeah I don't think it could ever have been only one of them yeah that was never even a choice I think I always knew that this is going to be equally about both of them and how they see each other because if it had if the whole story had just been in Hannah's perspective Mm. we would lose so much and if the whole story was just in Mira's perspective we would lose possibly even more because there's so much more going on in Hannah's life that Mira doesn't know about so that was never once never even occurred to me that it would just be about like one sister sort of perceiving the other sister it was always that they were going to be in it together and I think also like talking about um sort of emerging from a creative moment I think that you sort of bring that to life so well like when Mira has this inspiration and the sort of the vibe changes for her when she's gone from being totally stuck with this project she's been working on and then suddenly she's like yep got a spring in my step I know what I'm doing like it just I I remember reading it and thinking oh yeah this feels I that feels very familiar to me when when things are clicking and when the project's going well I really recognize that feeling of ease that comes with that and I can see as well why then she's like I don't want to let this thing that has inspired this go because it's such a magic little time to be working on a project like that and having that creative moment. Yeah. As you can tell, I've I thought a lot about this book. I love it. I love that though. I, again, I mean, I feel like I could take a back seat in this podcast and just listen to you both talk about playing games because it's just like, it's the ultimate feeling to hear you feel that it felt real and that you felt so strongly about it vividly about it and that you cared about it and that you could recognize elements of like we were saying at the beginning right like elements felt real to you because Mm. maybe you've experienced that as well and so um that just makes me very very happy to hear (laughs) as as a as a writer I suppose there's an element of what Mira was going through was potentially also what I was going through you know I was writing this novel to a very tight deadline I'd had two books come out in one year whilst I was supposed to have been writing playing games as well and I as I'd mentioned I'd written versions and versions and abandoning them halfway through starting again starting again um so I really wanted to capture almost for myself you know that feeling of this is this is process and this is what it looks like this is what it feels like and a kind of reminder that you do get there as well yeah it is interesting like that's an interesting thing about writers writing about writers I suppose you're capturing that really well (laughs) yeah (laughs) so see I did I did borrow from my own life and I I did that we figured out we figured out the moment (laughs) yes the writing so I, I did that in a very um literal way actually because there's a moment towards the end of the book I think the moment that you actually described Michelle when she's 
properly in the flow and it's all coming together and it's as if she's underwater um, and she's just in this novel, uh, in this in this play that she's writing and it's all flowing and it's coming together. And I wanted to be able to describe that in more tangible terms as well. Like how does that, what does it look like? Like how mm. to a reader when they're reading that book, someone who's just reading for the enjoyment of it. Like how, how do I make that feeling real? And I had set up one day uh, my phone next to my computer and I just had it on time-lapse. And I thought it was a bit of a silly thing to do at first, but I just left it there. And it got to the point where I completely forgot that it was there. Like within a couple of minutes, like, I, you know, I completely forgot it was there. And I was very focused on writing this chapter. And it was only later when I went back to look at it and I realized how much, what I do when I'm in the flow of writing how I looked I looked quite sad and quite serious I'm very deadly serious you would have thought from looking at my face that I was doing something very real very (laughs) kind of important for I don't know global politics or something like very very (laughs) life dramatic kind of thing I'm writing a book about people who don't exist but I am taking it so serious like the concentration on my face was very was very interesting to observe myself from that vantage point because I've never done that before um and to see all the little quirks and the gestures and the hair twirling and the sort of nails tapping against bottom lip and things like that like I thought ah that's the those are all the things I do subconsciously that I don't know I do but they say so much about character gestures can reveal so much um and I wanted to yeah, I borrowed that from my <laughs> life and gave that to Mira in order to make that moment feel more real than just writing about writing. Like it had to have a yeah. physical sense to it. Yeah. And so that's how I wanted to do that because I felt like, you know, if you're reading this book and you're not a writer and I, I don't want to write just for writers, like obviously <laughs> yeah. I want people to love and read my book and I want it to connect with them. And mm. So, you know, just writing about being in the flow can be very abstract. And the whole process of writing is abstract. It's why we ask how other people do it. And so I wanted to show it in a way that felt physical. So, yeah, that was very interesting for me to do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What an interesting experiment. <laughs> because, I mean, everyone jokes all the time that writing, like, looks boring. You know, so like that's a really interesting experiment to do a time lapse of yourself. That must have been so strange to watch back. It was very, it was really unusual to watch back. Like it was very detached watching it back. Yeah. And I did think, my gosh, like I look like I'm going to cry for most of it. But the seriousness on my face is what really kind of like, wow, Wow. because they are real and it does matter. Like they're real to me and I care about them so much. That was actually quite a, kind of strangely touching moment to acknowledge that what I do matters like it yeah. I, to and me you were like, that oh, it's that I important. care a lot about this yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it was yeah time-lapse videos that. are so funny like when this is so embarrassing so when time-lapse videos were I don't know like iPhones were like kind of newer and like there was like got like a time-lapse app or whatever um I did a time lapse once of myself like cleaning my room on the school holidays when I was a teenager (laughs) and I was like also listening to music or something and so then when I watched the time lapse video back there is a clear bit 
where I was not like moving around fast my room, you know, cleaning things up or, you know, folding, washing or whatever I was doing. I'm standing in the center of my room performing whatever music (laughs) I was listening to. And it's like, I really like, like, it's like, she's like buzzing around and then it's like, she's still and she's singing. (laughs) And I, I remember showing my family and being like, no wonder this takes you so long. Yeah. So yeah, time lapses, um, and you forget they're there, and then they really reveal your true habits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I was like fifteen or something. I remember that. Anyway, oh. <laughs> embarrassing stories aside, so we <laughs> um want to ask you about like your whole publishing journey. You just said you published like two books in a year. It's crazy, but I think maybe before we get to even get to playing games, technically in this timeline before Harper's Bazaar, you know, award and everything. Can you just tell us a bit why about why you love writing short stories? I feel, in a way, that short stories... I don't know how I feel about them going forward in the sense that, you know, now I've written a novel, um, I quite like the idea of being lost in a novel again because, mm. like, as you can probably tell, like, Hannah and Mira have been so incredibly real to me that I definitely loved being able to spend that much time with them whereas when I write a short story we're talking like maybe a couple of weeks sometimes just like one person but it's shorter in a lot of ways obviously you spend so much more time in a lot of ways yeah but on the other hand I still think there'll always be a piece of me that feels like they are maybe my most natural way of of writing um because they feel so true to me they feel like that isn't isn't that how we experience life right as this sort of these moments that stand alone and yet also say something about who we are or Mm. life do you know what I mean like they feel so true to me in a way that maybe sometimes I read novels and I mean I love reading novels and I don't mean to sound that in any way, I don't know, I just wrote one. But, like, they are neatly plotted. You know, they have mm. to be, and they're, they're, they are working towards a resolution, and it is satisfying when you get that at the end of the novel. All of those things are true, and, of course, not every novel is the same. They don't all have to be, but I'm just talking, like, very generally. But in a short story, there aren't any expectations like that there are no you don't have to conform to anything at the end you don't have to leave things tied up and I love that because that to me feels so true again of life like we don't just neatly resolve everything at the end of a day and then move on to the next like things linger things percolate something that someone said 10 years ago will rear its head one day when you're trying to do something that is completely unrelated and of course all of that happens in novels as well but I feel that the way that a short story can just be this brief glimpse into someone's life and yet into someone's life by that I mean into a completely fictional character yeah. life, this brief moment that somehow says so much about who they are that you feel like you've taken everything you need to know from them that is something that I don't know, that I just find so magical and so mysterious. And to this day, when I read, like, some of my favourite short stories by, say, like, a complete pro, like Alice Munro, for instance, I am forever thinking, how? How did you do that? How did you make me feel all those emotions in 
I don't know, 25 pages. Alice Munro writes quite long short stories, to be fair. But you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like, like that. it's that feeling of being caught up in something, yeah. but it doesn't just end when the story ends. Mm. That's what I hope to achieve in all my writing, even in my novels, say, like that feeling that, for me, that story's not over, and I wanted to give them an end. I, don't, I, I was kind of talking without spoilers in a way, but like <laughs> I wanted to give them a real tenderness I wanted them to have a coming together so I didn't feel like I was neatly resolving everything because I feel like they're complicated enough to know that things are not just all of a sudden going to be rosy and of course that probably is true for like every novel like things will always get complicated but I love the feeling that their lives are still being lived Mm. and that's what I kind of try to give to my readers as well because it makes me really sad to think that they're just I don't know they're just contained in a book and that's it like it doesn't feel like that for me like it really does feel like they're still they're still there and they're still living and they're still arguing they're still bickering but they're still there for each other so yeah that's I think there's elements of short story writing which has been my first form say and for a long time I would have said that it was my preferred form but actually now I'm not so sure like I, I really love having this chance to write Hannah and Mira's story as well. And I quite love, I quite like the idea of being lost. In so, but there's elements of those short stories, that, of those feelings, I think, that they evoke in you and the open-endedness and the not having to explain everything and the not having to go through masses of backstory before you get to the actual plot. Like, yeah. there's elements of all that that I'd like to marry, or I've tried to bring together with, with novel writing I'd like to think that I can feed both together to help me constantly kind of improve my own craft, Mm. which is what I try to do, I guess. It's so interesting to hear you even say that your mind has been changed a little bit now that you've had the the chance to, to be in the novel world as well. It would be really interesting to like hear from you in a few years how you feel like if you've done <laughs> yeah. more stuff whether it's short stories or another novel like how you feel like maybe after another novel you'll be like no I just want to go back to short stories like yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it's ever evolving isn't it like your craft as a writer it's is always evolving yeah. yeah yeah and I think that's something that I'm recognizing as well like I, you know I am a short story writer yes but I'm also other kinds of writers and and I think it's always only a good thing to keep exploring and to keep broadening and not to let yourself be defined too narrowly because otherwise you might just end up writing the same thing again and again and in a way maybe that is what we all do like I had already said at the beginning that there's certain themes that I'm always going to be returning to about people in relationships who can't say how they really feel and I don't think that is something that runs out but I, I just feel very, I feel much more open to things. And I think part of that is partly because I convinced myself I wouldn't be able to write a novel. So I convinced myself that this kind of short form is my form because I could handle it. I could mm. contain it. I, I, I yeah. could see it through. Um, well, I mean, you know, full length novels, but, are, yeah. they're so long and they take so long to write. And then it <laughs> takes so long. So like, you know, I totally understand that's like, it's too long. I can't handle it. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I've never written one. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's too much. So I think that is, uh, yeah, perfectly reasonable. Maybe you just always thought, like, your short stories are great, obviously. But, yeah, maybe you just always thought it would be 
much trickier or something and now you have and so now you know you can yeah now i know i can (laughs) yeah that will stand me well i think i hope (laughs) so yeah let's talk a little bit about the actual journey to publication you mentioned before the harper's bazaar story competition tell us a little bit more about what it's what this journey has been like for you yeah gosh so i became a journalist but pretty much immediately after i left university (laughs) um (laughs) i was yeah and i was really lucky because i went uh my first job was on the observer and i stayed there you know for a couple of several years actually i think but so i was writing for a living is what i'm trying to say so i was a journalist on a national uh newspaper i was writing for a living but i wasn't really doing the writing that i wanted to do and i think i realized that quite quickly i think i'd known that I'd always wanted to be a writer and then you're at that stage when you're in university and you're kind of supposed to be becoming an adult and finding a job and how do you say oh well I just want to write books like that is not that is not a career path (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, and so I did what most people that I knew who'd also studied English literature and wanted to be writers did which was to then try and find a way through journalism and I got very lucky that I did and I managed um, you know, I was on a really great paper, got some really great pieces and exposure and bylines and experience and learning from people around me who'd been in their jobs for like forever and all of that. So in that respect, I obviously learned a lot. I learned yeah. a lot about writing quite tightly. And these are things I think that actually did feed into short story writing as well because you just mm. you just have it to serves you so well so quickly yeah you don't you're not sitting there drafting again and again and again taking all the time in the world you just have to get it done I found that too um, with um, so, I found that too with copywriting you know when I started writing you know and it's that idea of being concise but getting the whole message across and yes making edits making changes but still doing it quite quickly turning it around quite quickly and sort of taking what someone's saying and just doing it in a more concise way really like yeah, it is exactly. such a good ground so you for that. Do, yeah it's a exactly it's a really good grounding in learning to write efficiently and clearly and with clarity and precisely all of those things Um, and so I was there for gosh yeah about seven maybe eight years but in that time I knew very early on that I didn't really want to be there and there were elements of journalism that just weren't suited to my personality then as a 20 something I was very shy very introverted it's a very difficult time for me because I started work on the day that my father passed away um and so I then went into work to explain that I needed to go back to the hospital I didn't know any of these people I felt very young I didn't really actually feel like I was an adult and there were people you know very established very kind of you knew their bylines and I you know it was I didn't know a single person there um and I was very yeah I just felt very young at the time so anyway it all that uncertainty was going on um and in the background, when eventually some of the intensity of that had passed and faded and I was able to sort of just accept the fact that, okay, so this is my job, this is where I'm living, my father has died, I'm going to carry on. And I carried on, I carried on just, you know, as I said, like seven, eight years working there, all the while knowing that this wasn't really what I wanted to do, it wasn't really mm-hmm. where I felt like I was me I didn't massively feel that 
at ease in that kind of world either and I carried a lot of anxiety about it um anyway this is going off on a tangent no. um, knowing that I was writing for a living but not doing the writing that I really wanted to do which was writing stories I started taking writing classes which was the point that I was trying to get to um, and I started doing them in the evening and I wouldn't tell anyone where I was going. I didn't even tell my housemates, my friends. I would just go there after work and hope that no one would ask questions. And I think I was just very shy and very unsure of myself. I didn't massively know how to be in a room full of people I didn't know. And, um, you know, would be asked to share our work and things like that. And I found that incredibly daunting because yeah. I just didn't. I think writing is so incredibly vulnerable and so to be asked to sort of read in front of like 25 people that you have no connection with for me for some writers that's great but for someone like me who had been through pretty turbulent time with that you know a lot of change you know I'd left home my all these kind of life changes going on that felt bigger than maybe what my friends my same age were going through all of that was going through and I think it made me turn inwards so for someone like me to sit stand up and read something that I'd written in front of lots of people that I didn't know felt incredibly scary so at some point point I just stopped going to these creative writing classes because I felt like I didn't belong there either and I felt really sad I felt really sad that I thought there was something wrong with me, that my writing wasn't good enough, that I didn't approach writing in the same way that other people did, because in that class, we approached it very academically. We would do very concise outlines and character spreadsheets, and it was very formulaic and very methodical, which is quite right. You know, there is a reason that those kind of tools and tips and advice exist all the way in, but it wasn't connecting with me. And so then I kind of went off piece and I just read all the books that I loved. And I remember sitting in front of my bookcase thinking, should I go to writing class today? Should I not? Should I go? Should I not? And then I just decided, looking at this bookcase, I had this very this moment that I'll still remember that I just thought, well, I have all of this. I have all these books. Why can't I just, why can't they teach me? And I started to kind of look at them in a really academic way I guess no yeah kind of not academic that's the wrong thing because that suggests it's really dry but I guess I started to ask myself why why does this book mean so much to me mm. how did they do that yeah which was not something I'd just try and take more from it such detail. yeah like like in the way you would at university if you're studying mm. literature, you know like you question things but in a way that felt more personal because I was asking for myself like what is it that this gives to me and um, books that, and so books that you choose and books that are emotional to you, yeah. not what a university lecturer says is important. Exactly. So it was, a, it just suddenly felt very freeing to be able to do that. And I spent, I guess I spent quite a few years just doing that, just reading books, underlining, questioning, noting. Um, I had three children, um, in quite close succession um my three children have got quite small age gaps and in that time by that time I had gone freelance as a journalist and I think when I was pregnant with my first child I got approached to do a book off the back of my journalism so that was my very first book but I I don't know I don't quite know that I had much 
uh, of a clue of what I was doing then. So, um, but, you know, I did it. And that, that was enough for me to believe that I could actually write another book, but that I knew that it yeah. had to definitely be better than the first book. Um, <laughs> and so when my other children were born and when, you know, I had all three, that was a turning point for me because it was like I'd spent this quite intense few years of early motherhood having you know, my babies, which was an amazing thing for me. It was what I wanted. It was what we chose as a family. So I didn't necessarily feel that I'd made this big sacrifice, but it did raise up questions about what I wanted to do next. And I knew for sure I didn't want to write the newspapers anymore. And I really did want to write what I had always wanted to write. And it was when my youngest child was um, about one and a half that it all came to a head. Um, and I realized that it was it felt very much like this very urgent now or never moment. And I, I don't know why necessarily. Um, I, I don't know whether it was a turning point in terms of his age that, you know, he would be going to nursery when he was two. And it just felt like time had suddenly like a, a chapter was closing. And suddenly I needed to think about what I was going to do with this next chapter. And I just knew that the only thing that made sense for me to do was to not try and continue being a freelance journalist by that point, but to take this time and do it for me. And so that's what I did. And he went into nursery in September, I think it would have been 2019. And I sat down and decided that I would just write short stories. And I set myself a time limit to write 10 short stories. So if I can write 10, that could be a collection. I don't think I was necessarily thinking about publication in a serious way, but I think I was definitely serious about producing the work. And I kind of look back and I wish I had that sense of urgency (laughs) now. I honestly don't know where it came from other than I really felt like things were slipping away from me and I needed this. So I really needed writing. And these short stories just poured out of me and I finished writing them between September and January to September 2019 and January 2020 Um, once they were complete like once I knew that there's a body of work there I started submitting them to competitions Um, not because I thought I would win but I because no one had ever read my work because I you know, for so many years, kept my writing to myself. I'd not even show my husband. I'd not show my closest friends, certainly not show anyone else. So um, I wanted an objective opinion. I thought, well, if I submit, if I land anywhere, and, I, you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, if I get shortlisted. I was more thinking if I get maybe longlisted 50 stories or something like that, then maybe, you know, that just gives me an idea of what's my trajectory here. And so, yeah, I entered a couple of prizes and was quietly amazed that they did land and I was getting shortlisted and I was getting longlisted and shortlisted and then I won the Harper's Bazaar prize and that was the turning point for me because originally I really hated that story it just wasn't working (laughs) I felt like it wasn't working and then it and at one point I thought you know I had this I had these 10 short stories all lined up and that was the one that I had a question mark around. I kept cutting and pasting it out of the document. Like, hmm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And <laughs> I think it was just that validation, you know, having yeah. people like Bernadine Evaristo be the judge mm. for her to offer something on my writing suddenly just reminded me that maybe, maybe I was doing something right after all. And maybe it did mean something. 
And that's what just set a, another fire under me. And that was when I started looking for a literary agent because I had that prize winning and, and various other um, listings to say that I was shortlisted in this, as long listed in this, as shortlisted in this, and I won this. And that all helped me get an agent. And I was suddenly in this very surreal position of having several offers on the table. And then an even more surreal <laughs> position of having several offers on the table for the collection itself. Um, and that's kind of how that all started. I missed out one big element of that, which is my memoir, because that wasn't fiction. But that as well came about as a result of my journalism. So I had written a piece in The Guardian about memoir and motherhood memoirs that I'd been reading in these kind of early years and sort of what I took from them and how generous it was that these books exist and things like that. And an editor approached me and asked, you know, did I have anything that she could read that could possibly add to what I was talking about in terms of motherhood? And I, I wasn't sure I wanted to write about my children. I, I kind of guarded in a way, but we had some back and forth. I had some sort of scraps of essays that I'd written for a, a very old blog of mine when my kids were little that I think hardly anyone ever read but they were kind of like life, just like moments of life yeah um and so I sent her those and from there it became apparent that there was a story to tell and that story was one of being a young adult feeling like you're supposed to be grown up when you're not and you're at a trajectory in your life and you have choices to make and not knowing how to make choices that weren't going to let other people down and things like that so that was where How We Met came from, which is essentially the story of how I met my husband, but also, as I've just alluded to, the story of, of a lot more yeah. <laughs> um, about grief and loss and love and growing up and writing and finding a belonging and finding a home and all the things that feel so uncertain and unrooted when you've gone through loss, I think. Mm. So, um, yeah, so that was sort of already happening at around about the time that I mean, the, the conversations about whether or not there was a book there was already happening whilst I was writing the short stories. Yeah. So I was very surprised that then that came through and then I got a new agent for my fiction and then that all came through and then <laughs> this happened. So it suddenly took off at in, the same in time. a very intense, mm, yeah. Wow. It's a very long-winded story I've just told oh, no, you. But yeah, it all happened. <laughs> I don't know, it feels like all these years that I'd spent wanting it so much, but yeah. not knowing how to get it. And then suddenly it happened very quickly. Mm. Um, but I think all those years of patience, I think, like it was hard to be patient as well. Because I wanted it so badly and I couldn't find the time or the space to write. And when I did, it just sort of came. And it feels like it was all building up to that moment, that kind of release that got me yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, absolutely wow. oh my gosh I'm we're almost out of time but I want to ask you <laughs> very quickly just to finish on you know I, we, we mentioned before that alongside your writing you also mentor and teach other writers and I think you know of all the it's very common for us to have writers on who you know have a day job outside writing to, to for mm -hmm. lack of a better word um but it's not, it's been a while since we've had someone who I think you sort of do the business side of being an author so well in that you have this mentoring, oh. you have like, you know, I sort of 
think of that separately to your work sometimes as well as an author. Um, but I'm just curious to know, like, how do you think that process of teaching and mentoring others helps your own writing and your own creative journey? Oh, gosh, it massively helps me. It's such an important way for me to stand still for a moment and remind myself of being capable as well and taking stock and constantly trying to better uh, my writing constantly. I'm constantly looking to other writers, to other, like, aspiring to know how it is you might achieve that feeling or that emotion, that tone. And reading is what unlocks so much for me. Um, And the courses exist because I as I've described in my kind of journey, like I know what it was like to feel like you can't do those classes. Yeah. Requires a certain kind of personality and that just, you know, there's some of us that is quite intimidating to do. Mm-hmm. And I wanted something that reminded us of how nurturing and lovely and intimate and emotional writing can be because I think what I struggled with maybe because I I am an emotional person I don't know but maybe because of that like I struggled with how dry this very creative practice was presented like I struggled with that and I took you know quite a lot of courses I took courses online I took courses at this uh, at a at a writing school after work and you know like I tried different formats it's not that I just tried one thing and decided it wasn't for me Mm. and um, I, I tried again and again to find a place where I felt like it was okay to be led by a feeling before, yeah. I don't know, before a plot outline or yeah. a character spreadsheet, yeah. you know, like I, I didn't find that. I knew that I wouldn't, couldn't possibly be the only writer who wrote in a way that people don't tell you to, you know, like. Yeah, of course. I don't necessarily do a messy first draft. I like to edit as I go. I don't, like, it's not a one-size-fits-all, but I think all too often it is. And if you can't fit, you can feel like you're doing something wrong. And I just wanted to make a place for people to explore writing by sharing my process and saying, look, this isn't the way to do it, but this is one way to do it. And if my writing and the way I approach things offers you a different perspective that unlocks something for you, then that's all I want is to help you find a way through, not to say you have to do this, 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 this. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a very, and I really think that you need to center yourself in your writing process. Mm -hmm. And often it's written about so objectively that it becomes quite unemotional and quite detached in a very kind of forensic way of approaching something that is creative and joyful and beautiful and potentially even spiritual on some level you know like it is a weird kind of magic that cannot be distilled into like a bulletproof of like how to I don't know structure a narrative arc and to this day I do not know what a narrative arc means (laughs) one day someone is going to pick up on that and they're going to say it's obvious she doesn't know how to structure a novel she doesn't know what a narrative arc is but I I, what I guess I mean to say is that I think you can be led by instincts and emotion Mm. and there is definitely a place for that in a creative practice Mm. so that's what I try to offer is a place where you can do that Mm. it's been such a joy to talk to you today (laughs) thank you so much 
for joining us. It's um, been so <laughs> nice to talk to you. Thank you. I've had a lovely hour and I could easily spend another two. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. And um, we hope to have you on again in the future. We like to, we, we're trying to do that more regularly again to catch up with people and, and you know, a some time away a year or more away from when we've spoken to them and sort of catch up with them and find out how they're going um, and what they've been working on so hopefully we'll do that again in the future but it's just been delightful um thank you so much for joining us could you please let people know where they can find and follow you online oh thank you um yes sure you can find me on instagram i'm at homokoreshi writer uh, and i have a website which is homokoreshi .co.uk and there's all information about those writing courses that we just talked about there um, and yeah that's kind of where I am when I'm not trying to not be on that <laughs> um, so yeah you can find yeah. me you can find me there um, and it's just been really nice to, to talk so thank you again both of you thank you for listening to Better Words you can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod and follow me Michelle at Unfinished Bookshelf and me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review. Mm-hmm.